is beyond all comprehension. So good morning. It's such a great day to come before the house of the Lord and to rejoice in him. And what a beautiful morning it is outside. I was having my own bit of time of worship in the car as I was driving over here. And just after a few days, or really a week, I think, of gloomy weather, the sun was shining. There was a nice cool breeze blowing through the air. And I just thank God for just such a beautiful reminder of the joy that we have in Him. Do you ever have little moments of worship like that? They might be just for a few minutes, but it's just so great every time. And speaking of joy, that's what we're going to be getting into this morning. And I want to start by reading uh, the very end of Psalm 16, which Pastor Tom read for us earlier. So if you turn to Psalm 16, verse 11, David writes, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And so as I was uh, preparing for this sermon and thinking about this service, I was collaborating with Katie, who led for us this morning. And I asked her, hey, can you pick out a set of songs that are joyful, that really illustrate this idea of the joy of the Lord? And so we reconvene a few days later, and we both came to the realization that there aren't a whole lot of songs out there about joy specifically. And I was thinking through the last few hundred years, a couple hundred years worth of songs written for the church, and, uh, and we could name a lot of songs about God's holiness, his faithfulness, his atoning sacrifice, about the hope that we have in Jesus, all great stuff, but not a whole lot about rejoicing, about being glad, about enjoying God, having the joy of the Lord. And those kinds of things might be hinted at and implied in these other songs, but not a whole lot that just come out and hit you right between the teeth with the joy of the Lord. In fact, I realize that the most we ever sing and speak of joy is during Christmas time. And this is remembering a time in which the work of Christ had not yet been complete. And so it just got me thinking, if we have a joyful time here, shouldn't we be singing with even more joy the other 11 months out of the year? Something to think about. But in any case, it just got me thinking that joy is underrated in the church. It's not something that we really draw from very often in our conversation about our faith. We kind of see joy as being this cherry on top or the icing on the cake as kind of a nice bonus add-on but it's not really as important as these other doctrines. You might have sung, I've got the joy down in my heart to stay as a child, but then you grew up and you grew out of this elementary doctrine and moved on to, to richer and deeper things. But I wanna tell you, if that's your view of the joy of the Lord, you are not only missing out, but you are in sin, believe it or not, because we are commanded to be joyful all throughout the scriptures, we are admonished to rejoice and to be glad. Most famously in Philippians 4.4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, again I say rejoice. Let's do that again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Amen. Woo. See, that ought to be... Our response to the Lord is rejoicing like that. You see, rejoicing and being joyful is not optional. It's something that we've been commanded to do. And I want to ask you, when was the last time that you repented for your joylessness? When was the last time you went to the Lord and you said, Lord God, I may have checked off all the morality boxes today. I know I believed, um, I believed in an orthodox way, all the right things but I wasn't joyful. I didn't delight in you. I didn't take pleasure in the fellowship with you today. So Lord, would you forgive me for my lack of joy, my failure to rejoice in you? When was the last time we noticed joylessness in someone else and gently admonished them, hey, you need to be rejoicing in the Lord. You're missing out if you're not taking joy in the Lord. You see, it is crucial to the Christian life that we be joyful. 
You ever been around people who just kind of suck the life out of you? It's like you've got to brace yourself to be around this person, and after you've met with them, you feel like you've done hard manual labor, but then you're around these other people, and it's like you feel like they've poured into you, like they're a life-giving person, and you feel more energized, you feel more positive, and you're just ready to go. That's what we need to be like as believers, as followers of Christ. People shouldn't look at us and say, all those glum, boring, solemn, dry people, they don't have any joy. They need to look at us and say, wow, these people are joyful. They have something, and I want that for myself. That ought to be the message that we send to the world, that we are full of the joy of the Lord. I love what Sam Storm says about joy. It's kind of a long quote, but it's too good not to include here. He says, passionate and joyful admiration of God and not merely intellectual apprehension is the aim of our existence and thus the essence of true spirituality. If God is to be supremely glorified in us, it's critically essential that we be supremely glad in him and in what he has done for us in Jesus. This is why we exist, to relish and rejoice in the revelation of divine beauty so that Christ becomes our all-consuming passion and sin turns sour in our souls. He states it so beautifully and eloquently. And of course, we're not chasing emotional highs. We're not living out of emotionalism. And biblical, theological ignorance with a lot of passion will only get us so far. But at the same, at the same time, we can't discount and ignore the emotional elements that we have here. God gave that to us after all. Our emotions reveal a lot about what is dear and precious to us. I was talking one time to one of our older saints before the church service started, and he's a, a gentler, more quiet, reserved man, and so we're, we're talking, having conversation, and then the conversation shifts over to his granddaughter, and then you can just see a change. His eyes just light up. He's smiling from ear to ear. His voice almost does a dance because it's shifting and fluctuating. And if the power went out, the place would be lit up with the joy that was coming out of him. As he talked about his granddaughter, the things that she was doing, how proud he was of her. And there was no doubt in my mind that this man loved his granddaughter. The mere mention of her name just caused him to light up. And shouldn't the name of Jesus do that to us? At the name of Jesus, shouldn't our passions and our affections be awakened? And should we not delight in him whenever we are reminded of our Savior, Jesus Christ? We are commanded to be joyful. And in Psalm 16, there's not a specific command, thou shalt rejoice. But rather, David is showing us by example how to rejoice. So you might see this psalm as one big command to rejoice. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 16, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to start here at verse 2 because it is crucial to unpack this verse to understand everything else that's in here. So in verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. And so David here is saying that God is the source of everything that is good. And the word for good here that he uses also implies pleasure. It implies the things that bless us. It implies joy. And so you could rephrase this and say, apart from the Lord, I have no joy. And so God is the source of all that is good. with the joy of the Lord. In the beginning, God hit the pause button right there. There's the joy of the Lord right there. But wait a minute, it didn't say anything. Oh, yes, it did. God is joyful community. He is one God in three persons. 
And within the Godhead, he enjoys mutual delight and affection. He is the very essence of joy. And so right there, you can't make it past those first four words without being smacked in the face with the joy of the Lord. And then if you read on in the book of Genesis, you see God start to act. And so you might say that the first act of God was a demonstration of his joy. Whenever he created the universe, he was joyful as he created. In Genesis, he calls his creation good. In Psalm 104, it describes him rejoicing in his creation. In Proverbs 8, it says how he was so overcome with joy as he was creating the world. Tim Keller describes him as frolicking with excitement as he was creating, as if he was giddy about his creation. A giddy God. We don't really think of that whenever we think of God, do we? So if you know me well, you know that I love to smoke barbecue. That's one of my passions. And it just is something that brings me a lot of joy. There's just something about picking that perfect cut of meat, putting the rubs on it, preparing it, putting it on the smoker with the right blend of wood, setting the temperature just right, and then letting the smoke do its thing. It's, it's a long process. It's not just nuking something in the microwave. It just takes a long time, and then the anticipation grows with each hour that it's smoking. And I just get so excited as the smells start to come out, and I'm yelling at Heidi, hey, come out here. Look at the mahogany color that's starting to form on the meat. Or look at those juices just oozing out there. Oh, doesn't that smell so great? There's a bark that's going to be so crispy when you get there. And then she tells me, yes, yes, for the 20th time, it looks and smells delicious. But I just can't contain myself whenever I'm smoking meat. And so scripture describes God as being very similar as he is creating the world. And I love how C.S. Lewis describes it. This is another long quote. I promise this is the last long quote, but this one is also just so good. C.S. Lewis writes in his essay called The Weight of Glory, the faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in, manner, in matter when he made the worlds are what we now call physical pleasures. And even thus filtered, they are too much for our present management. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead, that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us, the whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. Isn't that great? So basically what he's saying is that as God was creating, all his joy spilled over into creation. So think of the things that give us joy and pleasure. Think of hearing a beautiful piece of music, tasting and smelling of delicious food, seeing a gorgeous sunset full of vibrant colors, feeling a cool breeze on a hot day. These things that appeal to our five senses, they are remnants of the joy of the Lord. And if these things captivate us the way they do, if these things cause us to create works of art and works of literature because these things have been so inspirational, how much more whenever we dive headfirst into the source of all joy? And so that's what David is inviting us to do, to go headfirst into the source of all joy. Which brings us to verses 3 and 4. He says, I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods, or take up their name on my lips. So David is describing us two camps, one of which we can choose to be in, one of which will make us find ourselves in joy. And so David is surrounded by all these pagan nations and peoples. He's well aware of their vile practices and these idols that they worship, and he is repulsed by them. He can't even bring himself to put the names of these false gods 
on there because he wants nothing to do with them. And that's how our attitude should be whenever we're faced with the temptations of the world. And now, I would very much seriously doubt that any of you have graven images that you have at home and that you actually bow down to. But that doesn't mean that we, have, that we don't have our own idols. Take the idol of comfort, the idol of safety and security, that of wealth, of reputation and status, of education, of physical health, all these things that we can believe their lies, that they can bring us joy. But as he says here, idolatry leads to suffering. And you can see these cautionary tales in celebrity culture as the more that they become filled, the emptier they feel inside. You don't even need to be a Christian to to realize that money won't buy happiness. We hear that all the time, and we can hear other worldviews tell us things that sound so good. Don't chase after these fleeting things, but live for a higher purpose. You can find those messages in New Age stuff, in Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. So what makes Jesus Christ any different? Why follow Jesus? And the answer lies in the joy that he brings. Nowhere else can you go and find a joy, find pleasure as what you can find in Jesus. There's that word pleasure, and we'll see it later in verse 11. We kind of think of pleasure as, as not so good of a word, do we? If I told you I'm a lover of pleasure, that would raise some red flags for you, wouldn't it? Unless we're at Chick-fil-A, only they have sanctified the word pleasure. Whenever you order, and they say, my pleasure. <laughs> but pleasure is something that we are supposed to have in Jesus Christ. And so I will tell you, yes, I am a lover of pleasure. Give me more, give me more, because my pleasure is found in Jesus Christ. He has invited us to take pleasure in him. And if you look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says the chief goal of mankind, the chief end of mankind is to glorify him and enjoy him always. That's available for all of us. And so which leads us to the camp of the saints, the holy people, or the noble ones, as he calls them. He says that he delights himself in the holy people. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute. In the previous verse, he just says, apart from God, he has no good thing. But then he says, all his delight is in the saints. So which is it? Do I delight myself in the saints or in God? The answer to that is yes. It's a both and not an either or, because joy is found in community. God's very nature is community-oriented, community and he designed us to be in community. So it only makes sense that our joy is found in community. Yes, it's important to have our personal time with the Lord as we read the scriptures, as we pray to him in our prayer closet, but that cannot replace gathering together like what we're doing right now. I love what James Montgomery Boyce says whenever he says, those who love the Lord will love the company of those who also love him. Those who find their good in God will also find good in those who likewise seek him. And that's so true. That's why it's so important for us to meet here and sing and worship and pray together and dive into his word together. And not just on Sunday mornings, but we got Missions Festival coming up where we've got a couple days during the week when we're meeting here and we're hearing about what God is doing all over the world. There's small groups. There's other ministries like a worship team, the welcome team. There's tons of things that you can get involved with. Last night we had uh, the youth mini blast. Any mini blasters here from last night? I think I see a few. There you guys are. And that was so fun. I got to see them enjoying one another. And then we got here to sing, and I was leading worship for that. And they were singing so passionately, and it was just so joyful for me to see them delighting in the Lord. And then a few weeks ago, we, had, we hosted a game day here at the church. It wasn't like 
a quote-unquote ministry event. There was no Bible study or singing or anything, but we just got together to play board games. We had two rooms full of board games, and we had a great turnout. I think some of you, a lot of you here went to that. And so we had a lot of people bring games of all ages, and they just started playing together and enjoying each other. I had a blast. I got to spend some time with some youth kids that I hadn't spent as much time with before, some of which I met for the first time. And so I really enjoyed playing these games with them. And during one of the games, it said, all right, well, we have to kill the pastor. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. But I enjoyed my time with them. Now I'm speaking for myself. Whether they enjoyed their time with me, I don't know. But hopefully you guys will invite me to play another game with you. But whenever we enjoy each other with others who likewise share the same love for the same God that you do, and we experience that joy and that pleasure, we are experiencing the joy of the Lord. He is, he is sharing us with us the joy of his community. We need each other so much. And so imagine someone came up to David after he just completed this psalm and said, why should I rejoice in the Lord? Using this psalm to answer him, he could say that the short answer is because God is good. We rejoice in him because of his goodness. But he says, God has been good to me in three different ways. So there are three ways in which God's goodness manifests itself. And in these three ways, he uses three different names for God, which personify these ways in which his goodness is shown. So the first is found in verse 1, whenever he says, Keep me safe, O my God, for in you I take refuge. And the use of the word refuge here is very reminiscent of the cities of refuge, if you're familiar with that. According to Levitical law, if someone was involved in the accidental death of someone else, they could flee to one of these cities of refuge and be free of the retribution on the part of the deceased one's family. So as long as they were within the walls of the city, no one could touch them. And so that's what David is doing here, is he is likening God to a city of refuge. And so the first way in which his goodness is shown is that God is his protector, in which he uses the Hebrew name El, which implies the strong one, the mighty one. And in the same way, God is our protector. He is a safe place where we can run to in times of trouble. He, protect, he protects us all through the storms of life. Whenever the tempter comes, to try to cause us to stumble. He protects us with the full armor of God. Whenever the enemy throws our past at us, God protects us with the promise that there is no condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus. When the enemy tries to get us to doubt his love, he says that nothing will snatch you out of my hand, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whenever the fiercest storms heap over us, he gives us peace. He guards us with his peace. Which brings to mind Philippians 4, 7, in which he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your minds and your hearts in Christ Jesus. This is a verse that we often turn to for comfort, either for ourselves or for comforting someone else who is going through a sad time. But I wonder if we really truly grasp the significance and the weight of what Paul is saying here. Think for an instance what it would be like to be in God's shoes. And just go with me here because we're going somewhere. Now God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful and all-knowing. Could you imagine how stress-free it must be would you be, wouldn't it be so great to just walk out and not wonder if things are going to work out, but you just know it and you have it in your control? You see, God doesn't wake up in the morning and say, oh man, 
I hope that things go well today because I'm not on a good track. Or man, I overestimated the enemy. I didn't know he could do that. Or that wasn't supposed to happen. But there is nothing that happens that is out of his control. He knows how everything is going to end because he has not only foreseen it, but he has ordained it. Imagine the kind of confidence, the kind of peace that God has in who he is. But you know what the good news is? God is not keeping that peace for himself, but he gives that peace to all of us and invites us to have that peace in who God is. So if we truly have that peace, there is no need to stress. There is no need to worry or panic because God's got us. What else can do anything to us? Because he guards us, our minds and our hearts, with his peace. So God is not only our protector, but he goes a step further than that. Have you ever been to a storm shelter or a bomb shelter or something like that? They're very rugged, um, well-built buildings that are functional. They're designed to protect us from whatever danger may be lurking outside. But once the, pa- or the, once the crisis has passed by, then we can leave, go home, and go about our merry ways. But what if you could go to a place where whenever the danger has passed, you didn't want to leave? What if you went to a place that you would want to stay and savor it, that you find everything that you need there, that you find your belonging there, that you you want to invite others to come and join you in this place because there's nowhere else like it. Well, that's what David is showing us in these next few verses. If you'll follow with me at uh, verses five through six, he says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. And so he uses God's name Yahweh here, which symbolizes God's covenantal relationship with his people. It's a very personal, intimate way of addressing God. And he is saying that God is his provider. And he's using language here that speaks of provision and sustenance also more real estate-oriented language, such as uh, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, as if he's got this big, fertile, gorgeous chunk of land. Reminds you of that one scene from The Lion King whenever Mufasa tells Simba, everything that the light touches is our kingdom. I remember seeing that in theaters and being like, whoa, that's so cool. But that's kind of like what he gives, what he's giving to David is this huge inheritance right here. He gives him everything he needs. And David was a great and mighty ruler who enjoyed great military success. He had 12 tribes to rule. He had great wealth. But this is not what David's talking about. He's not talking about all these material things, but rather he is saying that God is his inheritance. And this brings to mind the Levites, If you remember, as the children of Israel were preparing to come into the promised land, 12 tribes were given land to claim. But there was a 13th tribe, the tribe of Levi, that did not receive an inheritance of land. But God instead said to them, I will be your inheritance. And so then they became the Levites who devoted themselves to the service of the worship of God as they served in the tabernacle and then later the temple. And so David is identifying himself with the Levites and saying, if my kingdom were to pass away and everything taken away from me, I have everything that I need because God is my inheritance. There's another C.S. Lewis quote that I really like whenever he says, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Just think about that for a second. Think about the the richest person in the world right now who's Elon Musk. I think he's got, what, $250 billion. And say that you happened upon $250 billion. For what bizarre reason, you inherited that. That's enough to give everyone in our country millions of dollars 
and it not make a scratch in your bank account. Can you just imagine having that kind of money? But let's just say that you were just one penny shy of what Elon Musk had. Would you be complaining? Oh man, why can't I have that penny? Yeah, yeah, I've got $250 billion, yada, yada, who cares? But that penny, why can't I have that? He's got this, I just got this. I think you're, if you were telling someone that, I think they'd look at you like you were crazy. Hey, I'll take one millionth of that. But that's what we have in Jesus. We have everything that we can possibly need. What is wealth? What is health? What are all these other things? Those things are all going to go away. But we have the imperishable that will never pass away. I was just talking to a dear sister of ours before the service this morning, and she informed me that she received some, some bad health news. And so as I was listening to her, the joy of the Lord was just beaming across her face. As I, and I know this lady, and I know that she trusts in the Lord and delights herself in the Lord. And she's here every Sunday, regardless of how she's feeling, because she can't wait to get in here and worship with God. And I asked her if I could tell her that, and she said that was okay. But that's the kind of joy that we have that's not dependent on our circumstances. It's not depending on our stuff, but the joy comes from Christ being our treasure, to which everything else will be meaningless. Just like we know what Paul also says in Philippians, that he considers everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord. So we see that he is not only our protector and our provider, but there is a third way in which we are shown the goodness of God. And that is seen in verses 7 and 8. He says, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And so here he uses the word to call God Adonai for Lord here. Adonai means like a master, an authority figure. And so he has his Adonai as his counselor. This is the third way that he shows his goodness. God gives us wise counsel in a foolish world. And sin entered the world in the first place because wicked counsel was heeded. And now ever since then, we've been surrounded by wicked, vile, foolish counsel on all, on all sides. But God offers his perfect counsel. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, whenever prophesying about Jesus, calls him the wonderful counselor. So what does wonderful mean? That's kind of a word that we've cheapened and diluted over the years. We use it so flippantly. In fact, it kind of seems like one of those words that, you know, we think of whenever we can't think of anything good to say. Like whenever you're trying to stomach something, ooh, it tastes wonderful. Or at the end of a blind date, I had a wonderful time, I'll call you. Or the other day I told Pastor Tom, you preached a wonderful sermon. No, just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, Tom. No, that was actually a great sermon. I, I suggest you go check it out. But what does wonderful mean? It means just like it sounds, full of wonder, beyond comprehension, something that we can't describe in a thousand words, nothing that we can put our finger on to place in a nutshell. But we have a counsel of one whose knowledge and wisdom is limitless. And he has given us his counsel right here. Whenever we are afraid, we can find somewhere to go right here. Whenever we are in doubt, we can find it right here. Whenever our faith is weak, we can find, anything, we can find something right here to lead us to continue on the straight and narrow. God has given us his word that will never return as void because we know that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. And we cannot go wrong if we follow the wonderful counselor that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And David had lots of advisors at his disposal, but he's saying that in spite of all the wisdom that he's exposed to, 
there is nothing like the wisdom of God. And so he chooses to follow God's counsel. And we should do the same. After we get through missions week, we're going to be venturing into the book of Ephesians as our next series. And I'll just give you a sneak preview because I love this verse. In Ephesians 1.17, Paul writes, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And the more we know him, the more we understand his ways, the deeper we can love him, and the more fervently we can rejoice in him. And so then we see the tone start to change whenever we get to verse 9. He writes, Therefore my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. And so you see what he's saying here. Up until this point, David had been describing his own life. But then something amazing happens here. It's like he has this out-of-body experience under the, the influence of the Holy Spirit, and then he starts to see things from Christ's perspective. Because he says, you will not abandon me to the grave. You will not let your faithful one, or some translations say, you will not let your holy one see decay. And so he's not talking about himself, ultimately, in this verse. But he's talking about Jesus Christ, who is to come. The Apostle Peter would later exposit this passage in his famous sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. He would refer to this psalm and say, you know the, the tomb of David? You can find there his bones right now. Nothing but a pile of bones there. So David's body did see decay. So it's not talking about David, but rather it's talking about Jesus Christ. And so he's telling his audience, believe in Jesus Christ because you have seen his resurrection. But not only that, this has been foretold in scripture. So you can take this and you can accept it because Jesus Christ and his resurrection is real. And Peter used this to present the case for Christ in the new covenant. And so you might think, okay, well, this psalm is about the resurrection of Jesus, right? I would say, no, not quite. But the resurrection of Christ is a point for that's supporting another underlying theme. But the resurrection is a big deal. It's crucial to our Christian faith. What could it possibly be merely supporting? Now, there are other passages in which the resurrection is the main point, but the resurrection serves to underscore another point here. And the point that we're looking at here is that Christ died and rose again so that we would be restored to the Lord in joy. You see, everything built up and culminated with his resurrection so that the product of that would be our joy in the Lord being restored, just as was his design at the dawn of creation. The writer of Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. So in this psalm, he keeps pointing through all these ways to the joy and the pleasure of the Lord. It is through this that we eventually get to Psalm 11, where we started at early in the, ser in the sermon. And so it's just so amazing. You see, David, he didn't have the knowledge that we have right now of the afterlife. We know that when we die, we go to be with the Lord in heaven. That's a no-brainer, right? But back in the Old Testament, there was not a clear idea of what the afterlife would be. But in spite of his limited knowledge, David was convinced in his heart of hearts that death would not mean the end of his relationship with God. He didn't know when, he didn't know how, but he knew that death was not going to end things because he had experienced too much of God's goodness. He had seen too much of God and was filled with such a love and joy for God that he knew it wasn't over yet. 
And lo and behold, David was right. So if David is able to rejoice the way he did, how much more should we be able to rejoice? You see, he responds with joy whenever he says, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. And he uses the Hebrew word for rejoice, which is gil, which translates into something like to spin around violently with emotion. Now, I'm not going to demonstrate that to you right now because I know myself and I know that I will trip and fall. But David is not keeping it a secret what God has done for him, but he wants to shout it out. He wants to spin around, do cartwheels, and say, my God has been good to me. He has protected me in times of trouble. He has provided me everything that I need and more, and he has counseled me. How much more should that be our response in light of what God has done for us, in light of his great goodness and how he has lavishly given us his goodness? How much more should we take that and rejoice in him? If you remember in in the, the Gospel of Luke, whenever Jesus sends out the 72 to go minister in the land, They come back excited. They're like, whoa, hey, Jesus, guess what? Even the demons submit to us in your name. And so then Jesus graciously responds to that and says, don't rejoice that the demons submit to you in my name, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. When was the last time you rejoiced that your name was written in heaven? When was the last time you looked around as we gathered here and said, Lord, Thank you that my neighbor, that his name is written in heaven. Thank you that I'm surrounded by voices that I'm going to hear again in heaven. Thank you that whenever the enemy tries to get me to doubt you, that you can look up in your heavenly search engine and my name comes up in the results of the Lamb's book of life. That is something worth or truly worth reveling in and rejoicing in taking intense pleasure. When people come and see the church, we shouldn't be those glum, solemn people who have no joy or they don't, they're not friendly, they don't do this. No, they should come and say, those people, they love the Lord. They are so filled with joy. They have something that I want in the way that they sing and proclaim his praises, in the way that they treat one another, in the way that they speak of the Lord, in the way that they have a heart for those to come and follow Jesus forever and to grow the church in the way that they love those around them. That's what people ought to see whenever they look at the church. That's what people ought to see whenever they look at Cary Alliance Church. They should be able to come in our midst and just feel the joy of the Lord that is just oozing out of our souls because we have someone in whom we can be truly joyful in. Rejoice, for our names are written in heaven. And so then here's the big question. What if I don't feel joy? Some of you are here this morning and you might be going through difficult times and so your joy doesn't seem to be there. You definitely don't feel like you're on top of the world. Or maybe you're here this morning and you feel dry, maybe even apathetic, indifferent. And God never said that joy would not sometimes be accompanied with suffering, with sadness, with heartache. It's something that unfortunately has to coexist for a time. But the joy that we have is stronger than anything else that can try to come alongside of it. You see, God is committed to your joy. It is in God's best interests that you be joyful and not that his glory depends on your joy. God could have picked any way to glorify himself, but he chose to give us the opportunity to be joyful in him. If you're familiar with John Piper, you've heard him said, say all over again, God is most glorified in you whenever you are most satisfied in him. So God wants you 
to be rejoicing. He wants you to be glad, to be happy. He wants you to have a smile on your face as you respond to all the ways in which God has been good to you. He wants you to be joyful. And so if you truly desire that, seek him and ask him, and he will give you that joy of the Lord. And something else that ought to bring us joy is that the greatest joy is yet to come. There's going to be a time when there's going to be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more pain. But you know, heaven, I think, is going to be characterized not so much by what is not there, but rather what is there. Just think about it. We're going to be surrounded by the fullness of God's glory, seeing it for the first time to which now we've only got little glimpses of, and already it can be overwhelming sometimes. But just think, we're going to be among all the hosts of heaven. We're going to be with every believer who has gone before, every believer who is with us now, and everyone who will come to Christ later on. And we're all going to be singing in one voice, so jubilantly, triumphantly, joyfully. And it's something that we can't even fathom. If you think that you've experienced great worship in this life, You just wait because there's nothing that we can do to describe how that's going to be. I used to wonder as a kid, man, isn't heaven going to be boring? It's eternity. It's forever and ever. The most fun things that I like, I get tired of them after a while. But let me tell you, with the kind of joy that God brings, hold on to your seatbelts because it's not going to be boring. Not at all. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up, and we're going to do something a little different in closing. Typically, we would end with a song of reflection or meditation, but I want us to call our attention to the things that God has done, to the, to the goodness that characterizes him and the ways that he has shown his goodness to us. Because whenever we think about where we once were and now how he has taken us and he is shaping us for a better place, that ought to fill our hearts with joy. Whenever we stand up and sing and we look around and we see all these believers that have been joined with us, who've been saved from countless sins, who've been saved from destruction, who are now walking the straight and narrow right alongside you. If that doesn't bring you joy, I don't know what will. So we're going to sing this upbeat song that we all know called House of the Lord. The bridge in particular is very powerful. It says, we were the beggars, but now we're royalty. We have been made into a royal priesthood. And now he says that we are running free. Can't remember the first part, but we have been set free from our chains free to follow Christ. We have been redeemed by his grace and accepted, redeemed from our sin with his grace that is greater than our sin. And then it closes. So let the house of the Lord sing praise. So I want to invite you to stand up, to smile, to sing with everything that you have and delight yourself in the Lord. So take it away, worship team.